Today's Satna Dhamma talk is Satna meant to support all of you in your meditation practice. And just like with all of the other Dhamma talks. Now, on occasion, it certainly happens that certain meditators certainly say, well, I've observed the rising and falling already 5,000 times. I know everything about it. There's nothing new to it. And what is there left to be observed? And certainly then, the same thing may be said with regard to other predominant objects. And Satya, hence it's certainly necessary to you know, know some you know, observational as well as you know, some descriptive certain categories that might you know, come in handy at you know, some point or you know, near the other you know, during one certain meditation practice. Now, when uh, giving you know, this talk you know, a few years you know, back in Lumbini, you know, one of our you know, meditators who had practiced there already you know, several you know, years, um, coming once, uh, once a year for several you know, years, she you know, remarked it would have been good to have heard you know, this talk uh, at the very, you know, during her very first you know, retreat. So um, it is certainly uh, for sure uh, and uh, fundamental uh, talk uh, that uh, will help you in your practice. Now, to start with an illustration. Let's say um, a person happens to be overall quite uh, quite uh, healthy and certainly not suffering from any particular illness. However, then this person ends up sick and ends up with some physical discomfort and then immediately runs to the physician and then the conversation goes as follows. Namely, doctor, I'm suffering from fever, I'm suffering from a cough, and then there's also a sore throat and runny nose, and then I have all sorts of body aches, and then some headache is there, and it sure seems to me that these are indications of a swine flu. And so... And in particular, when I consider that certainly the other day I was eating some pork. And so, and so there must be a strong relationship between my eating pork and now my coming down with H1N1 flu. Now, Buckley, what do you think? Uh, pardon me? I try not to think, but in this case, do try to think for a little bit. So, as a doctor, as a physician, if you would receive, or if a patient comes to you with this kind of description of various symptoms, and then with his or her evaluation, this must be swine flu. What do you think of this? By me? There you go. And so, 
And uh, from a physician's certain uh, point of view, you, know, you want to hear, you want to have patients who you know, give an accurate you know, you know, description of you know, their you know, various certain you know, symptoms and not laced with all sorts of evaluations, with all sorts of judgments, and then maybe with a statement like, oh, doctor, I'm surely going to die tomorrow. And, <laughs> And so, so there is no need for this. Now, some of quite or some of the symptoms mentioned I've checked on the internet are indeed H1N1 symptoms. However, they're also common to the symptoms of an ordinary flu. And so, and what one does need to consider whether one is a member of a so-called high-risk group, namely if one has had certain chronic lung disease, has had a chronic heart disease, chronic kidney disease, liver disease, and might be, maybe even diabetes mellitus. So in these cases, maybe uh, it could be a case of H1N1, but certainly it still needs to be further checked carefully. Now, just like it is not proper for a patient to strongly judge his judge and evaluate his or her experiences or symptoms, so too for a meditator it's important to just observe whatever is happening and to observe as accurately as possible and then pass on these certain observations to the guide or teacher in meditation. Now, there are quite a number of well objects that occur in our meditation practice where we think this is really nothing worth paying attention to. So think of a bending movement, bending of your arm. Have you ever paid attention to it? Really carefully? Yes? Ah, oh, not carefully. So, an activity such as bending one's arm seems like not worth observing. How, and so, we may experience this in different ways. So one way is of simply not paying attention to it, and so then it just goes ignored. And so then if we do pay attention to it because maybe this certain particular movement comes up again and again, then we might find that a bending movement is a bending of the arm is not necessarily a continuous movement, but rather a movement that consists of what? Of what? Of broken, broken movements. There you go. So a segmented certain movement, a movement that consists of certain smaller parts. This is certainly correct. 
And certainly then, when we observe this bending process of bending of the arm very carefully, then we might notice that certainly there's even an intention to do so, a mental or an intention that arises in the mind, something that previously we did not notice whatsoever. Now, when we observe this bending process over and over again, we might make further discoveries, namely that, let's say, owing to a certain itching sensation occurring on the face, we then feel impelled to bend the arm. And then as we observe this bending process even a few more times, we might find that it consists of segments, yes, and actually quite a number of segments. And these segments tend to be rather short and quick. Now, this is not all. With further observation, we might find at certain times that the bending process itself is actually not all that pleasant. And so sometimes it may even be painful and then there seems to be change with the segments. There may be not that many anymore and they seem to be somewhat rougher. And so and then, at a later point in our practice, we might again consider observing the bending process, and certainly then we find that it's certainly quite a different experience. This time around, it's a more gentle process, and with lesser segments, and certainly each segment being rather longer in time. Now, it is when we start paying attention to the most ordinary phenomena occurring in the body and in the mind that we make all sorts of discoveries. And so, in the meditation practice, there are certain experiences that certainly keep repeating themselves in order to draw your attention to them. And when this is certainly the case, then do pay attention to them. And so, if, for instance, time and again you are experiencing, let's say, certain certain jerks of foot near the body, then it might be high time to actually start observing them. Or to give you another example, maybe this is even more obvious. Um, if time and again you find that the body is moving in different ways, sometimes it's certainly gradually leaning forwards, sometimes it's gradually being pulled backwards, sometimes it's leaning to the right side, sometimes to the left side, sometimes your head is circling around, etc., etc. So if these things happen, it's high time to pay attention to them. 
and to pay attention to you know, aspects such as, you know, well, you know, what kind of movement it is, and then the different direction of you know, the movement, and certainly you know, then maybe the speed of the movement, and certainly you know, then you know, whether it is a continuous movement or not, and certainly you know, so segmented. If so, you know, how many segments certainly you know, occur, and so, and then is it just a straightforward, simple movement, or is it maybe a rather complex experience that consists of different movements? And so there's plenty of things that one could pay attention to. Now, the Buddha has given a number of certain observational categories and as well as certain descriptive categories that very much apply to our field of meditational experiences. And so what we shall do is, during this talk, take a look at some of these major categories and certainly then you know, describe what they're all about and uh, maybe also relate certainly some uh, direct uh, um, uh, or, or you know, certain cases. Now, when an object like you know, the rising and falling movement of you know, the abdomen occurs, you might uh, uh, want to check whether your rising and falling is more on the soft side or more on the hard side. Or you might certainly want to check whether it's rather smooth or rather rough. And uh, you might also you know, check whether it's certainly rather you know, solid or maybe uh, a more you know, broken, you know, broken up or brittle, you know, brittle experience. Now, these are uh, various aspects of you know, what is known in the Pali scriptural language as Bhattavi Datu, namely the earth element. And certainly so, you know, then check you know, whether you know, you're observing a certain object, with, you know, like the rising and falling or something else, and certainly then you know, check whether the earth element is playing a major you know, role at this particular you know, point in time or not. Or, again, when you observe, let's say, you know, this time around, a pain, then you might certainly check whether or how this pain is behaving in terms of, well, heat, cold, warmth, coolness, lukewarm, sensation, and certain states in between. So, this then refers to the so-called temperature element, Tejo Datu, or the fire element, as it is known in the English language. And then you'll just have to check very carefully where is your experience located at on the spectrum between heat and cold. 
Now, for certain experiences, movement or motion may uh, apply. And so then check very carefully whether there is a motion taking place or maybe not. Absence of a movement is also an important aspect. And then included, we could then also include things such as distension and pressure, which are aspects of the so-called wind element, wayo nadatu, in the Pali scriptural language. And then, at times, certainly we we sit in meditation with eyes closed, and then our nose certainly is, so to speak, out of control. And certainly then all sorts of nasal fluids come oozing out. And certainly so, in this case, certainly we could certainly pay attention to this particular aspect or as it is gradually getting warmer and warmer, the body may react in a very particular manner, and then you find yourselves what? Sweating. Sweating. And uh, uh, sweating, perspiring, and then if the sweating is quite predominant, you know, the sweat may collect in certain points and certainly then you, know, you might end up you know, with a whole flow or whole current of sweat running down you know, the body. Maybe not certainly here, but in Lumbini, you know, during the peak of the hot season, it certainly gets so hot then lots and lots of sweat is well developing in the face, and then it all collects at the at the what do you call it the the chin, and then drop by drop it falls into the lap, and in this in such a case. As a meditator, you would have no shortage of objects that certainly clearly belong to apodatu, namely the water element. So this covers flowing of flowing sensations, flowing of nasal fluids, and certainly then oozing, trickling, and certainly the like. Now. These four broader categories are known as the four great elements. And they are mentioned in the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist philosophy and psychology, not without a reason, namely because they make up our physical experiences in every physical object, these four great elements are present to a greater or lesser extent. And so it's worth paying attention to them. Now, when you sit in meditation, you will not be sitting there perfectly upright all the time, like the Buddha statue behind me, but sometimes 
your uh, sitting posture may be somewhat slouched at other times it may be somewhat relaxed at other times it may be how very straight yes and then what else at other times very Stiff, yes, certainly is correct. And sometimes certainly various movements might certainly take certain place. Now, the sitting, the way the body is certainly arranged on the cushion itself is an indication for what is happening in your meditation practice. And certainly the Venerasaida Usasana, a Burmese meditation teacher, and a long-term disciple of Sadhu Pandita once remarked that when spending time in the meditation hall and just observing how the meditators are doing, how they're sitting, and by observing how they are sitting, the posture, one can make an educated guess where a person's practice is at. And indeed, the, there are clear connections, at least for some of the inside knowledges, between the posture and certainly the inside knowledge. And so do pay attention to this particular aspect. Sometimes you might, to add one aspect, you might find you start the sitting, your posture is perfectly upright, so you're happy. And then you observe your rising and falling movement of the abdomen, and then it's somewhat difficult because your mind is not really active, and your mind goes into a somewhat lethargic, semi-conscious state, so half-conscious, half half-not-conscious, and then very soon you find that your posture is something like this. And uh, maybe even worse, like this. No, sorry. <laughs> and uh, and then and then you feel ashamed. Then why am I sitting like this? And I want to be the great yogi. And uh, and so you straighten your posture. And with a renewed effort, again, you observe your rising and falling. For one, you're seeing quite a number of details. You're seeing the four primary elements there, so you feel happy. And then once again, your mind goes off into this lethargic state. And once again, it ends up in this somewhat dreamlike state. And without you even noticing it, your posture has collapsed a second time. And so this may happen many times in a sitting. So if this is a primary feature in your sitting, then it's high time to pay attention to it. And certainly then you could mention it in your report. Now, there are so many 
other categories that are relevant at one point or near the other in our meditation practice over a longer period of time. Please do understand, I'm not saying that all of these categories will be applicable every moment of our practice. Sometimes one feature is more in the in more predominant at other times, some other feature. Now, have you ever considered paying attention to the sequence of major events within one session? So, how does your practice start out? Like, what about you rising and falling at the very beginning of the session? Now, the Venerable Sadhu Pandita has, well, a policy of requesting meditators time and again to first report on the rising and falling movement of the abdomen. And he has a very strong reason for this. And I assume this certain to be the main reason. Namely, when you sit down and you close your eyes, and immediately afterwards you pay attention to your rising and falling movement of the abdomen, it will give you, you know, the baseline of where your practice is at. And so, you know, so it means that, you know, that's, you know, it's uh, your, you know, the foundation of your practice, and so, you know, then in the course of you know, the session, you know, your rising and falling as well as other objects are likely to you know, then you know, develop you know, further. And so, by taking a quick you know, look at you know, the rise and fall, you, know, you, you know, then you know, gain an opportunity to see what's happening, and, you know, then, you know, and then you can take your practice you know, from there. And so, you know, then you can, you know, then it's much easier you know, to understand you know, what happens you know, in you know, the sit. Now, when we start uh, with uh, near the observation of the rising and falling, uh, and suddenly uh, then uh, maybe uh, after uh, some time a pain becomes uh, the most predominant object, okay, uh, then we pay attention to this. And so, uh, then it certainly uh, might certainly uh, happen that certainly uh, next uh, maybe uh, a very difficult mental state arises, like uh, let's say aversion, and certainly so then you know, we deal with the aversion. We observe it properly. We try to know its certain nature, and certainly then after some time we find you know, that certainly you know, the body is full of you know, physical discomfort, and certainly you know, the mind is full of you know, mental you know, discomfort. And certainly then a certain sense of frustration with the practice, a certain sense of being fed up with the practice arises. Now, there is a certain sequence here. There's a certain development within one single sitting. And um, so you're starting at a certain point, and Satna then, the very clear features of Satna one the inside knowledge are unfolding. And Satna thus, you want to recognize Satna the development. Later on in the practice, it may very well be 
that within one single session, your practice moves upwards you know, through several insight knowledges and it might then, you know, during the same session, also you know, drop off again you know, to some extent. And so, so in a case like this, it's even more important you know, to know you know, the sequence of major events. I'm not saying to know every single you know, tiny little detail, but the you know, most predominant uh, uh, objects. <clears throat> now, what holds true you know, to you know, the, or what holds true for you know, the sitting meditation also holds true you know, for our walking you know, meditation. So there too, you might you know, discover a certain you know, sequential you know, development. Now, at certain points in you know, the practice, so-called pairs of opposites you know, become uh, an important feature. And a meditator you know, might certainly find uh, that uh, for a while the body seems extremely heavy and then maybe a couple of sits later on or a day or two later on the body is uh, uh, extremely light. And what a difference this is from one extreme to the other. It's the same body, but you know, sometimes we, at certain point, we extreme it as uh, experience it as rather heavy. At some you know, later point, as extremely light. And when it's light, you know, then and we do walking meditation, it feels like you know, walking on a cloud. And so, then we you know, might you know, notice. For a while, then the body is pretty restless. All sorts of bodily movements are taking place. We try to tame the body, but it will just not do us this favor. And then, a few hours down the road, maybe a day or two down the road, the situation changes, and we find that the body, the various movements of the body, have calmed down, and there is a noticeable absence of movements. And so, with this, again, you have a pair of opposites. And suddenly then, you know, the same thing you know, would suddenly go for you know, things like hardness and suddenly softness, or you know, for maybe uh, roughness. Uh, your objects tend to be rather rough in you know, nature, and later on, you know, they tend you know, they you know, become more you know, refined, more subtle, more delicate. And suddenly then, if you know, for a while, you experience mostly unwholesome, unskillful mental states, and then you have a big battle to find, and then as you persist with your mindfulness, gradually the situation changes, and more and more wholesome mental states arise, then you will have another pair of opposites, namely unwholesome mental states versus wholesome mental states. And this is an important change. 
uh, in your uh, in your implementation. And so do notice this. And sometimes it could certainly also be you know, you're experiencing a predominantly wholesome mental state. The hope is, oh, let it be or may it be like this forever until you know, the end of the retreat. And, <laughs> and then comes the great disappointment you know, when the unwholesome mental states, certainly for some un, uh, not so clear reason, come you know, back. Now, another interesting feature is something very basic, such as time, objects in time. Now, objects may behave differently in terms of time. At certain points in the practice, it may happen that an object arises, let's say a pain arises, and certainly we you know, then dutifully you know, observe this. We label the object, you know, the, you know, the pain, we observe it nicely, we know its nature. And while the pain is still going on, a second object arises somewhere else in the body. And so, you know, now the second object is quite predominant, so it pulls our attention and naturally you know, then the mind goes certainly towards the second object. And then, while we're observing, labeling and observing and knowing the second object, and before the second object has come to an end, a third object arises. Now, what do we have with this? What are objects doing? They are overlapping. That's exactly it. So. You have basically one object going on here, and before starting here, ending here, before the first object has ended, your second object has already arisen and is going on, and so on and so forth. So, when if this happens to be the predominant feature in the sitting, then do notice it. And certainly with this, you will then have picked up a really crucial point. And if a meditator can make this statement during an interview, it will be very helpful for the teacher, because then one really knows what's going on. Or, not too long down the road, things will change again as certainly usual, and certain meditators then might find you know, that objects are behaving in a different way. And certainly so an object arises, you, know, you observe it, you know its nature, it passes away. And certainly then, only after the first object has certainly passed away, you know, does you know, the second or you know, second object you know, arise. Again, you observe it, you know its nature, and you know, it passes away. And certainly then, after a few moments or so, the next object certainly comes up. So in this case, how are our objects behaving? They're not overlapping anymore, is correct? So in, pardon me? There's space between them, or, pardon me? They're sequential in order. Or a different way of putting it is you know, they are occurring in a linear fashion, one after the other, and without an overlap. 
Now, sometimes it may happen or it may seem as if you know, objects are happening, you know, several objects are happening simultaneously. And this occurs especially when our mindfulness uh, you know, tends to you know, have a panoramic quality to it. So you focus your attention on you know, the primary object, like the rising and falling movement of the abdomen, and so, you know, then you know, while you're observing the rising and falling, you, know, you notice all sorts of other objects you know, sorry, at you know, the periphery. So simultaneous uh, occurrence of you know, objects. Or you know, we you know, could you know, say you know, there is synchronicity of you know, events you know, taking place, concurrence of you know, different you know, of different events, and you know, so if this happens you know, to be the predominant feature you know, for a while in your meditation practice, you might as well you know, pay. Uh, attention to it and certainly uh, then uh, explore it and uh, uh, know it certainly uh, fully. Now, a very, very simple uh, aspect, it's almost too simple to state, is the duration of objects. So, as I've mentioned already during you know, the well, I think welcome talk and the opening talk. Some objects like pain could last for an entire sitting to the dismay of the meditator. And then we have other objects that fortunately don't last that long and maybe an ache or so that pops up and then it sticks around for a couple of minutes and eventually it goes. Or it certainly could happen that the majority of the objects that we are experiencing and observing are have a rather short-lived uh, uh, lifetime. And so an object arises and the next moment it's gone. Another object comes up somewhere and the next moment it's gone. And so if uh, this is happening, then know it. And see, meditation is not a static new thing. It's nothing, there's no stagnation there. It is a process of continuous change. And so, at the beginning of our meditation practice, objects tend to arise and then last for quite some time. And the mind, and in particular our mindfulness at first, also tends to be rather dull and slow. And so it can't, if at an early point, you know, objects were to you know, arise in a very you know, arise and pass in a very quick you know, manner. The mind wouldn't be even even able to pick you know, this particular phenomenon. It happens below you know, one certain you know, threshold of you know, attention. And however, gradually you know, you know, things evolve, and certainly then you know, we find you know, then certain you know, objects or the flow of events is certainly you know, speeding up. The mind is also you know, becoming. You know, the operational speed of you know, the mind is also you know, speeding up and certainly then much, much more is certainly happening. So at times this might get quite exciting. And certainly so 
in, just see this development over time in, with regard to the duration of your predominant objects. Now, sometimes, as a meditator, you might know, well, which rule of thumb should I follow? Is there any principle, any maxim that tells me what is really an important experience and what is not? There are thousands of things going on and how do I know what to really pay most attention to? Go by the aspect of predominance. And the term predominance is actually stated, if I'm not mistaken, in the Dhamma Sangani. So it's, a, it's part of you know, the um, technical vocabulary. And so if you have any object that um, occurs again and again, so there's a high predominance there, and is also you know, rather you know, distinct, and it's a strong experience, then do pay attention to it. And you know, predominance is also to be understood in the sense that you might be experiencing a tiny little itch here and there, but again and again and again and again. So if it happens again and again, then your body wants to tell you something. And then do pay attention to it. Now, as we've you know, spoken you know, already about you know, this process, certain you know, character of uh, um, you know, our experiences in you know, the meditation, it also needs to be you know, said that it's not always like this. At the very outset of our practice, objects tend to be rather static. And so, if you were to listen to a couple of reports given, you know, you know, reports uh, you know, given by new meditators you know, during an you know, interview, you would very soon you know, get the picture, and so, you, know, you would hear it you know, frequently. Hear the meditators say, "Well, a pain arose," and the statement stops right there. And so, as a teacher, you're lucky if you know, the meditator says, "Okay, it was a hard pain." No, so a qualification, no. and so, um, and at that point, you know, that hard pain is perceived by you know, the meditator as you know, basically you know, a rather you know, solid, compact, unchanging object, and this certainly, you know, fortunately is certainly not a permanent certain condition. This too will change over time and certainly gradually objects, including our pain, become much more transitory in nature. And so then see this development from a more static character of your experiences to a more process-oriented character. Now, Sometimes, in the interview, you know, the question comes up, the meditator reports a certain experience, and then you know, the question comes, well, where, did, uh, where in the body did you experience you know, this sensation? Let's say, you know, stiffness. And you know, then the, the meditator goes, okay, you know, stiffness you know, occurred in you know, the upper back area. And 
the location of Fortner objects may be a very important uh, indicator for what is going on. At certain, in a certain insight knowledge, you know, the stiffness in you know, the upper back area is common you know, among you know, meditators across the board. And so it will, you know, you know, you know, there's a meaning you know, to it. Now, having said you know, this, here comes a question for you. Uh, during our meditation practice, Will there always be a definite location to uh, our bodily formations? Will you always be able to clearly specify the object occurred in, let's say, you know, my right big toe? Huh? Susan is certain. Uh, no, no, no. Why not? Yes, very good. Now that's it indeed. Now there are, or there is a certain point in our meditation practice when the location of an object um, just it's it's not a relevant category, and the object no doubt is there, but you cannot specify its location. And so, if this is the case, then don't get maybe, or don't despair. There's nothing wrong. You're not going to fall apart. <laughs> and that's rather, it's just the nature of of a particular phase in the meditation practice. So when you can specify the location of an object, please do so. And certainly if the location of an object is not a relevant category, okay, then forget about it and just go for a bare observation of the experience and then what certainly happened to it. Now, in the course of a longer retreat, and a one-month retreat is a longer retreat, then we may come across certain times when we experience a multitude of objects occurring within a rather short period of time, and then at some other point it could be just the opposite and relatively few objects are occurring. So we have fewness of objects versus a multiplicity of objects. So it is so simple, but it's really worth paying attention to this particular feature. And so this aspect is mentioned not without certain reason. Like in the third insight knowledge, as well as in the tenth insight knowledge, meditators tend to experience relatively few objects. And then a little bit further down, let's say in the fourth insight knowledge, so that's, you know, the two are not you know, very far apart, 
you know, things suddenly may change tremendously, and all of a sudden, a meditator may find herself or himself bombarded by various formations occurring here and there. And so if previously you had plenty of time to observe every single object, now you don't have that time anymore. And your mind has to be really active, really dynamic. So there's a change of quality that is taking place, and it's worth capturing it. Now, much, 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 much later in the practice, and maybe most likely not to happen during this Satna retreat, meditators say that the composition of an object might Satna change. And Satna, so at times, you know, the core of an object may seem rather solid, maybe hard even, and the periphery of you know, that same object uh, is rather soft. So then you have you know, rather you know, big contrast between what happens in the in the middle, in the center of you know, the object, and nothing uh, around it. Now, to stay with simple aspects, we um, confidently assume that something like the contour or the form or the shape of the body is a permanent aspect of our existence. So, before we engage in intensive meditation practice, if somewhere, you know, someone were to come and come up to you and say, uh, "Could it be that uh, you know, there's no form or shape? Ultimately speaking, there's no you know, form or shape to the body." You might think, "My goodness, what is this person saying? This is not my experience." And so, then, however, you know, during intensive practice, our perception of you know, this very body and also the world around us does change. And it changes not just once, it changes many times. And certainly so there are, especially during the beginning phase of our meditation, the shape or contour of the body, for the most part, will be what? Clear or not clear? At the beginning, will be clear. And so, Later on, though, you know, things turn around, and suddenly then meditators might say, oh, um, it seems like my right hand is missing. I, <laughs> I know it's there, but it seems somewhat out of place, or you know, sometimes meditators say it seems warped, it seems as if turned backwards, and, and sometimes all of this might get quite annoying, or you might even become anxious, what is going to happen to me? And so what is happening is, that our concept of uh, the mental concept or construct of uh, a form or shape of the body is breaking up. It's falling apart. 
and further down the road, we then may experience again and again. We sit there with eyes closed and the shape or form of the body is no longer clear, no longer evident. However, life, or fortunately, life goes on. <laughs> now, another uh, aspect that you might uh, well enjoy hearing. Here comes a meditator to the interview and suddenly gives the following report. First comes the question, how's your practice doing, latest development, and so on. And then comes the description by the yogi. Oh, my practice is going very well. My rising and falling is suddenly rising, or the rising, when the rising occurs, it rises. When the falling occurs, it falls. And yes, the pain, the pain occurred, but no problem. And sitting for an hour is also no problem. I have no problems in my practice whatsoever. And so what do you think of a statement like this? Does it provide certain, uh, a teacher with plenty of information? <laughs> it gives certain, close to zero information. And certain, this statement is certain, a rather general statement. So just generalities that are being communicated. Now, when we meditate, uh, we don't want to you know, get lost in you know, general or generalities. Um, there are, on occasion, meditators, and I'm not referring to any particular person here in our group. Uh, <laughs> it happens that certain meditators have certain experiences, maybe two, three, four experiences, and immediately they lump them together and certainly then come up with a general statement, such as, you know, you know, my experiences in, in general are uh, on the pleasant side. It's a good statement, but could be much more detailed. And if a meditator keeps doing this, over and over again, and just giving general descriptions of what is going on, then he or she is not really going to pay close attention. And so one needs to be careful with this, and a much better way of proceeding is to observe you know, the specific qualities of each and every predominant object and also during the interview you know, process to stick to specific descriptions of you know, what you know, happened um, rather you know, than you know, going off into you know, well aggregate certain you know, type of you know, statements. And so when you give an experience, then right away give an example for what you mean. Or if you want to make a general statement, then give a very specific example. 
And so in general, for the meditation practice, a specific description is to be preferred over a general description of objects. And if you happen to be you know, one of you know, those generalizers, you know, then you know, please you know, try to you know, work you know, with this and try to become more you know, specific. Now, when we observe simple you know, phenomena you know, such as certain hardness, such as pain, could be the rising movement of the abdomen, you know, could be a mental state, Unfortunately, the self comes in again and again. And so it really, at times, messes up our observation of you know, the respective object. And so it does you know, this in a way that suddenly we relate to the object as my pain, my hardness, my rising, my anger, my this and that. Now, Fortunately, you know, there are other times in you know, the practice when you know, the same hardness, the same pain and uh, aversion you know, arise. However, this time around, it's just pain, it's just rising movement, it's just hardness, it's just aversion. And so this time around, there's very little identification with the respective object. So what we have here is you know, the question of entanglement in, with objects and, on the other hand, um, not being uh, entangled. So disentangled, detached, disidentifying with objects. Sorry. And so this is a rather subtle point and that you might want to no, no, consider this occasionally when you observe an object. And in particular, when you deal with difficult mental states that seem so real, that seem so overwhelming, and as if crushing us, then it's good to realize if there is a strong entanglement with the respective destructive mental state. And if there is such an entanglement, then to recognize this and to basically observe in a much more detached, objective manner. And it will make your practice so much easier. <clears throat> now, the Buddha has uh, coined three Pali technical terms, namely Sabhava Lakana, Sankata Lakana, and Samanya Lakana. Uh, Sabhava Lakana is your specific characteristic. And Sankata Lakana is your condition characteristic, and Samanya Lakana is your universal characteristic. What do these three terms have to do with your meditation practice? Nothing at all or a lot? Pardon me? Everything. Or everything. So then, um, in the course of a retreat, what's the development? is the development from 
first certain experiencing the universal characteristics of Fatner formations, two then experiencing the condition characteristic of formations, two then finally observing the specific characteristics. Is it this way or not? No. Ah, very good. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it sure seems this is a group of experienced meditators. Mm. So it is indeed that certain you know, things start with you know, an observation of the specific qualities of objects. And so when you know, we start out with our you know, meditation practice day one in, you know, of the retreat, you know, then we'll experience, you know, we observe the rising movement of the abdomen and suddenly then we observe it, and suddenly then we sees, let's say, some tension there, and then maybe the tension developing into stiffness. And then a couple of minutes later, again, we observe the rising movement, and suddenly this time around, we find that it is much more shallow, and suddenly there's much less sudden tension there. And so then, in the first case, there was a lot of tension and stiffness. In the second case, very little, plus the object was, it was a shallow movement. So you're seeing specific qualities, specific qualities of the first rising movement, and then specific qualities of a later rising movement. And basically, we during the first few days of our intensive practice, all we observe is just the specific qualities of objects. And to really get to know what is what, who is who among the various objects. And so it's kind of an analysis of what is actually going on. Now, having done this, to a substantial degree, the practice then naturally changes, the focus, the main focus changes, and suddenly we then start to notice that every object tends to have a beginning, tends to have a middle portion, and tends to have an ending. Earlier on, this was not necessarily the case. And so, like um, during the very beginning of Vodna retreat, meditators for the most part you know, observe just the middle portion of an object. So middle of the rising movement, middle of the falling movement, middle of a pain, and so on and so forth. And so, um, then gradually then you know, the ending portion also becomes predominant. So with this then beginning, uh, sorry, middle and end uh, are predominant. However, the beginning is still somewhat uh, out of focus. And then eventually, even the beginning becomes accessible to our mindfulness. And with this, then the whole object from start to finish will be there. And so this then is seeing the conditioned characteristic of Fertner formations. Then, now, when we go on in our meditation practice, there is a further you know, development, namely from condition characteristic to you know, more seeing the universal characteristics of Fortner formations in the sense of, you know, well, 
you know, seeing the transitory nature, you know, seeing you know, the unsatisfactoriness of formations, and certainly you know, the absence of a self uh, aspect. And um, this is the natural development, and over time, over you know, a couple of you know, days, and so it's good to see this according to reality, to be really conscious of what is going on. Now, when it comes to various objects, their density might change tremendously over time. So when we observe our, when we observe a pain, let's say in somewhere in the back, then it may seem like a solid ball of iron, and rather uncomfortable. And with this, we might assume that it's going to be like this for a long time to a long time ahead. Now, when we observe this certain pain with much patience and certain persistence over and over again, we might certainly find that it undergoes a certain change. And then over a long period of time, so let's say several weeks of practice, it might even happen that this so-called solid, at first very solid pain, then turns into a rather fluffy and certainly even airy phenomenon. And sometimes it may seem rather like a cloud, almost immaterial. So what a change. And then it's worth paying, it's worth to follow this development over time. Now, There is a point in our meditation when objects are still somewhat unclear. Actually, for quite some time, objects are not that perfectly clear, not as clear as we would wish them to be. And as we go on, our mindfulness improves, our concentration improves, our intuitive footnote wisdom improves, and finally you know, we can see you know, the, you know, our perception of the rising and falling uh, is really clear, if not crystal clear. And at that point, it really feels like now finally I'm doing good practice. And then, the assumption among you know, meditators, for the most part, is that certain things will continue to be as clear as certain, uh, you know, it was or it is right now, and if not, certainly even you know, becoming clearer and clearer in the future. 
Now, this is on a, another wrongful assumption. There are so many wrongful assumptions that uh, we hold um, before you know, we undergo intensive footnote practice. And these wrongful assumptions, one by one, in a very patient manner, the practice clears them up uh, and suddenly uh, uh, gradually we see uh, according to reality. So that earlier crystal clear perception of objects uh, then uh, very soon uh, changes into a rather uh, obscured, rather vague, uh, uh, foggy perception of objects. Now, when this change occurs, meditators will generally feel very inspired or uh, uh, <laughs> no, so not inspired at all. And uh, they may start having set, you know, second thoughts about their own practice and how come, what's happening? I'm trying so hard. I'm making every possible effort in my meditation and suddenly something is not quite right here. And there is nothing wrong with you as a meditator. It's just that the practice is, has just taken an unexpected turn. And there, please know this right away from the beginning. There are many such unexpected turns on you know, the path ahead of you. <clears throat> now, continuity of mindfulness has been stressed already several times and it will be stressed many more times in the days to come. And continuity itself is, continuity and lack of continuity is, or those two, are yet two more observational categories that we might want to keep in the back of our mind. And so this continuity and discontinuity of, uh, applies to which factors? So mindfulness is one. Can you think of other factors? Concentration. What else? Effort. There you go. Whether our effort is really continuous from moment to moment or not. And then what else? Equanimity. Yes. Okay. So... With this, we have our odd, now there's still uh, another aspect. What about your labeling? Now, whether your labeling uh, is uh, not all that continuous uh, as it ideally should be or not. And so then also another aspect, uh, continuity or discontinuity of your own practice. So... Uh, you will uh, surely know there is such a phenomenon as uh, uh, taking a vipassana or a, a holiday from vipassana meditation <laughs> and uh, occurring on retreat. And uh, then, fortunately, uh, for the most part, uh, there's also, uh, well, uh, working uh, very hard and uh, observing whatever comes along. So, 
do check how you're doing in terms of this continuity versus discontinuity, in terms of mindfulness, in terms of effort, in terms of concentration, in terms of equanimity, in terms of your labeling, and in terms of your practice as a whole. And if you find that there's a certain discontinuity there, then do something about it and try to be more continuous. Now, a few last points, and then we're almost done. Namely, complexity of experience. At first, our understanding of the rising and falling movement and other objects may still be rather simple. Later on, as your practice deepens more and more, be prepared for ever-increasing degrees of complexity. And to an extent, that is actually quite amazing. And so check how or what is happening. As mentioned already at the outset of the talk with the illustration of the bending process, um, bending process or any kind of, let's say, bodily movement. So uh, is it a straightforward linear movement that is taking place or is it a movement that consists of tiny other movements, maybe in a first a, a straight line, and then a zigzag movement, and then maybe a jerky movement, etc., etc. So what seems like one continuous movement is just a, a, a perception at the surface, but what we observe really carefully might at a later point be experts in a very different way. Now, one more point certainly regarding to the self early on, the entanglement and not getting entangled in objects was already mentioned. Now, the point I want to get at is the presence versus the absence of a sense of self. Or, to put it differently, the forming and certainly the unforming of the self. Let's say you observe some pressure somewhere in the body, and so then as, you're, as the pressure is gradually becoming stronger and stronger, becoming somewhat uncomfortable, a sense of self starts establishing it, uh, itself. And so, so a sense of self forms then you, know, you might want to pay attention to this, and then you keep observing you know, the pressure. Your mental attitude towards the pressure might change. You might become, you might become maybe more accepting of the pressure, and also more equanimous about it. And with this, you might then notice a deforming of a sense of a self and then the self disappears. So with regard to one and the same object, there's a sense of self coming in and then also fading away. So if this is the case, then do notice it. And it might at times be quite fascinating even to, to see this. Now, 
what we have described these different observational qualities and certain or categories and descriptive categories are very useful for meditators for in the process of what the venerable Sadhu Upandita calls self-research. So doing a careful research into what is happening in the body and in the mind. And when one does this self-research, what does one find out? There is no self. There you go. (laughs) That's it. So ultimately speaking, there is no self to start with. Now, when we sit in meditation and we carefully observe what's happening, or we do our walking meditation, or we're mindful during general activities, then we don't want any judgments to be there. We don't want any evaluations to be there. And do we want to make use of very abstract theories, like Abhidhamma theories? or maybe even some worldly theories, uh, we don't want those to be there. So what we want is just a bare, straightforward observation of what is actually happening. And so, you know, for this, do we need any you know, scientific tools like an you know, you know, fMRI? <laughs> we don't need. And so, All we need is to work with what we have already within us, namely mind, or we need to possess some faith, some effort, some mindfulness, and some concentration, and automatically the result will be the arising of intuitive wisdom, and that intuitive wisdom would then compare to the results of an fMRI scan. Now, uh, and so our observations, our findings from you know, the practice are probably going to be more comprehensive than an fMRI scan. Uh, Venerable Vieranyani, you've worked in the field. So much better. Now, Venerable Vieranyani has worked in both fields. Uh, it's correct, no? So you know, the field of meditation and prior to that of fitness, scientific research. Now, a movement dedicated to describing the structures of experience as they present themselves to consciousness without recourse to theory, deduction, or assumption from other disciplines such as the natural sciences is known as what? Who is saying this? Ah. Uh, very correct. So the answer is phenomenology. And phenomenology is not in part. Um, it is one, it is a, a 20th century philosophical movement. So a certain development in modern philosophy and certainly started by a philosopher known as Edmund Husserl. Now, the greatest ever phenomenologist was who? The Buddha. 
And let me conclude today's Dhamma talk by wishing may all of you become expert Vipassana Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.